Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Beloved listeners, welcome to today's radio program. I'm Kadlote Konomu and I'm very happy to be back with you to present the New Zealand Greek Metropolis's Christian Orthodox Radio program on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM. This is with the blessing of our Archbishop Kyrios Kyrios Miron. We hope you'll find today's program both interesting and spiritually enlightening with its mix of readings and explanations from the Holy Gospel, readings from spiritual books, some discussion on the lives of the saints, hymns and notices. Now for a few words of introduction in Greek. Αγαπητοί ακροατές, χαίρετε. Σας ευχαριστούμε που είστε συντονισμένοι μαζί μας για ακόμη μία φορά στην εκπομπή της Ερεάς Μητροπόλεως Νέος Ζηλανδίας στο Wellington's Access Radio 106,1 FM. Αυτό γίνεται με την ευλογία του Μητροπολίτου μας, Κύριος Κύριος Μύρονας. Ελπίζουμε να σας έχουμε μαζί μας καθόλη την διάρκεια της σημερινής εκπομπή, από την οποία εύχομαι όλοι μας να οφειλεθούμε πνευματικά. Και τώρα ας ξεκινήσουμε το πρόγραμμά μας, όπως κάνουμε κάθε εβδομάδα, με την προσευχή Βασιλέ Φουράνιε. Βασιλέ Φουράνιε, παράκλητε, το πνεύμα της αληθείας, ο πανταχού παρών και τα πάντα πληρών, ο θησαυρός των αγαθών και ζωής χορηγός, έλθε και σκήνωσον εν ημίν, και καθάρισον ημάς από πάσης κυλίδος, και σώσον αγαθέτας ψυχάς ημών. O heavenly King, comforter, the spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from all impurities and save our souls, O gracious one. 
Let's spend some time now talking about important church events as well as the lives of some of the church's athletes whom we commemorate either today or will do so during the week to come. Today is the 10th Sunday of Luke and Father Bavlos will speak to us about this later. I'll speak about St. Nicholas, wonder worker and Bishop of Bera, whom we will commemorate, God willing, on the 6th. And I'll also speak about the conception of righteous Anna of the Most Holy Mother of God, which we will celebrate on the 9th. As we've said previously, the reason we read and talk about our saints is so that we learn from them and apply these learnings to our everyday lives, essentially to give us the courage and strength to face all our trials and tribulations with faith, patience and love. Let's start out by speaking about St. Nicholas, wonder worker and Bishop of Mira. St. Nicholas was born in the 3rd century. His parents were both pious Christians and being childless until his arrival consecrated him to God at his birth. Various traditions recount signs of Nicholas's future glory as wonder worker apparent already in his earliest childhood. One recalls that as an infant in the baptismal font, he stood on his feet for three hours in honour of the Holy Trinity. Another proclaims him a childhood faster, who, not accepting milk from his mother until after the conclusion of evening prayers on Wednesdays and Fridays. From an early age, he studied the church's sacred scriptures and thrived on reading divine texts and earned a reputation as a devoted youth who often read the sacred texts at church until late in the evening. This soon came to the attention of the local bishop, Nicholas's uncle, who was also called Nicholas. Seeing his nephew's zeal for the Christian life, he tonsured him a reader and later ordained him priest. At his ordination, the elder bishop Nicholas remarked, I see, brethren, a new sun rising above the earth and manifesting in himself a gracious consolation for the afflicted. Blessed is the flock that will be worthy to have him as its pastor, because this one will shepherd well the souls of those who have gone astray. It will nourish them on the pasturage of piety and will be a merciful helper in misfortune and tribulation. As a newly ordained priest, Nicholas was given a special charge of assistant to the bishop and the instruction of the faithful, a unique and uncommon role given his very young age. St. Nicholas approached his duties as priest and teacher of the faith with the same fervour that his uncle had witnessed in him during his childhood. Despite his youthfulness, many of the faithful considered him an elder and his ability to respond to questions of the faith in love and wisdom earned him the deep respect of those in the city. He was noted in particular for the fervency of his prayer, his kind-hearted nature and his charitable work. Following Christ's example, St. Nicholas sold his possessions and, following the death of his parents, distributed his inheritance to the poor and sick. 
In one of his most well-known acts of selflessness as a young priest, he reacted to the intention of a local wealthy businessman who had fallen on hard times and lost his fortune. Desperate, the man decided to sell the bodies of his three daughters in order to raise funds for the family. Hearing of the plan through a divine revelation, St. Nicholas went to the man's home in secret during the night and threw an offering of gold, 300 coins wrapped in a handkerchief, through the man's window. Convinced of the goodness of the gesture, though unaware of the identity of his benefactor, the man used the funds to arrange for his eldest daughter to be married honourably to a nobleman. Later the man arose to find the act had been repeated, and eventually a third time. Following the example of his bishop, who had made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land a few months before, St. Nicholas requested to travel to Jerusalem himself to visit the holy places of the city. Icons today continue to recount the miraculous nature of his voyage there by ship, during which a great storm arose which he had earlier predicted. Seeing in a vision the devil climbing aboard the ship, St. Nicholas warned the crew and prayed for the salvation of the boat and its occupants, and the sea calmed. Arriving in the Holy Land, he made his pilgrimage to the holy places, in particular to Golgotha where Christ was crucified. Overcome by the reality of this, these places where Jesus had walked and preached, St. Nicholas wanted to retreat into the desert to live a life of solitude. But he was stopped by a divine voice which forbade this and urged him to return home. This he did, though still longing for quiet and the solitary life. Having been moved by his experiences on Mount Sion in Jerusalem, he entered the monastic community of Holy Sion in Ligia, but again the Lord made known to him that this was not to be his path. The voice of the Lord said, Nicholas, if you desire to be vouchsafed a crown from me, go and struggle for the good of the world. This monastery is not the vineyard in which you shall bring forth the fruit I expect of you. But turn back, go into the world, and let my name be glorified in you. Wanting to follow God's command, he departed the brotherhood of Holy Sion and moved to Mera. Shortly after his arrival, the archbishop of that city died. There was some discussion as to who should succeed him as the chief bishop and the local synod of bishops wanted the new archbishop to be revealed by God, not chosen by man. One of their eldest clergy had a vision of the illumined Christ who indicated that the old bishop should go into the church, for the one who was first to enter it that night would be called Nicholas, and this was who should become the new archbishop. The elder bishop went to the church to await Nicholas's arrival in obedience to the vision. When St. Nicholas arrived, the bishop stopped him and asked his name. He replied, My name is Nicholas, Master, and I am your servant. The bishop took St. Nicholas immediately to the other bishops and exclaimed, Brethren, receive your shepherd whom the Holy Spirit himself anointed and to whom he entrusted the care of your souls. He was not appointed by an assembly of men, but by God himself. 
Now we have the one that we desired and have found and accepted the one we sought. Under his rule and instruction, we will not lack the hope that we will stand before God in the day of his appearing and revelation. Nicholas was consecrated to the episcopacy during a tumultuous time in the life of the church in Ligia. The persecutions unto the emperor Diocletian affected the region deeply, and for a time Bishop Nicholas was imprisoned with other Christians for refusing to bow down and worship the idols. He was remembered later for the encouragement he gave to his fellow prisoners, urging them to endure with joy all that the Lord lay before them, whether chains, bonds, torture or even death. Bishop Nicholas's imprisonment came to an end with the ascension of Constantine to the throne in the early 4th century. He returned to his flock in Mira, which received him with joy, and he resumed his episcopal work. He was known as a great ascetic, as he had been since his childhood, and for his gentleness and love. But his kind-hearted spirit was also one of zeal, and with the new freedoms offered under the peace of Constantine, he was known to travel through his city, visiting pagan temples and overthrowing their shrines and idols. In the year 325, a great council of bishops, the largest in the history of the church, was held in the city of Nigea under Emperor Constantine. This synod, which in later years came to be known as the First Ecumenical Council, was attended by over 300 bishops from throughout the Christian world to establish various canons of order for the growing church, affirm the faith and combat heresy. In particular, the teachings of Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, were addressed and condemned by the council, which formulated a statement of faith that, with later refinements at Constantinople, became the creed of the church. St. Nicholas was a participant at this council and is particularly remembered for his zeal against Arius. Having openly combated him with words, Bishop Nicholas, in a fit of fervour, struck Arius on the face. Shocked by this behaviour, especially given that the canons forbid clergy from striking anyone, yet uncertain of how to react to such actions by a hierarch they knew and respected, the fathers of the council determined to deprive Nicholas of his episcopal emblems and the gospel book and placed him under guard. A short time later, however, several of the assembled fathers reported having a common vision. The Lord and his mother returning to Nicholas his episcopal items, instructing that he was not to be punished, for he had acted not out of passion but extreme love and piety. This was taken as a sign that St. Nicholas's behaviour, whilst extreme, was nonetheless pleasing to God. And so Nicholas was restored to the fullness of his episcopal office. St. Nicholas reposed in old age in the year 343, and a church was built in his honours by the residents of Mera, in which his relics were kept for many centuries, after which time they were transferred to Bari. This occurred after St. Nicholas appeared in a vision to a priest and told him that he did not wish to remain in a city as barren as the defeated Mera. He instructed the priest to remove his body from the city. 
After informing the residents of Bari of this vision, three ships were sent to Mira to retrieve the saints' relics. On their arrival in the city in the year 1087, the travellers from Bari found the church of St. Nicholas abandoned, except for four devoted monks. These monks led to the, the men to the coffin of the saint, which they had hid to keep it safe from invaders. On opening the coffin, the men found St. Nicholas's relics flowing with myrrh, which they collected in vials before securing the coffin and placing it on one of the ships for the return voyage to Bari, accompanied by two of the monks. Some time later, the ships arrived in Bari and were met at the port by the local faithful. A great festal liturgy was held in the church of St. John the Forerunner and Baptist, to which the saints' relics were taken in procession. Craftsmen had fashioned an ornate silver box into which St. Nicholas's head and hands were placed, while the remainder of his relics remained in their original coffin from Mira. A short time later, a large church was built and dedicated to St. Nicholas, and the two boxes containing his relics were transferred to it from the church of St. John, where they remain to this day. Myrrh continues to flow from the saint's relics as it has for centuries. <laughs> Let's now speak about the conception by righteous Anna of the Most Holy Mother of God. Saint Anna, the mother of the Theodogos, was the wife of Saint Joachim and the daughter of a Levi priest. Anna and Joachim were married and childless for about 50 years. This saddened them, and they vowed that should the Lord bless them with a child, they would dedicate it to him. Hoping their prayers would be answered, they brought gifts to the Lord's Temple in Jerusalem on the yearly Feast of the Dedication and Feast of Lights. The priests, however, did not wish to accept them, since they were from a childless man, and Joachim was scorned. Publicly humiliated, he soon remembered Abraham, whom God had given a son in his old age. He then retired to the wilderness to pray, where the archangel Gabriel told him that his prayers had been heard and that his wife would give birth to a daughter who shall be called Mary. The archangel also reminded Joachim 
that, according to your vow, she shall be devoted to the Lord from her infancy, and she shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from her mother's womb. Mary shall not eat or drink anything unclean, nor shall her conversation or life be among the crowds of the people, but in the temple of the Lord, that it may not be possible to say, or so much as to suspect any evil concerning her. Anna, meanwhile, went home to her garden weeping bitterly. She sat under a laurel tree and prayed, O God of our fathers, bless me and hear my prayer as you opened the womb of Sarah and gave her a son, Isaac. She wept, asking, Alas, who begot me? And what womb did bear me that I should be thus accursed before the children of Israel and they that should reproach and deride me in the temple of my God? Woe is me, to what can I be compared? I am not like the fowls of the heaven, because even the fowls of the heaven are productive before you, O Lord. Alas, to what can I be compared? I am not like the beasts of the earth, because even the beasts of the earth are fruitful before you. O Lord, woe is me, to what can I be compared? I am not comparable to the waves of the sea, for these, whether they are calm or in motion, with the fishes which are in them, praise you, O Lord. Alas, to what have I been likened? I am not like this earth, because even the earth brings forth its fruit and season. And blessed you, O Lord. The same archangel appeared to Anna and told her, I am the angel who has presented your prayers and arms before God, and now I have been sent to you to announce that you shall bring forth a daughter who shall be called Mary, and who shall be blessed above all women. She shall be full of the favour of the Lord even from birth. She shall remain in her father's house until she is weaned, and thereafter she shall be delivered to the service of the Lord. She shall serve God day and night in fasting and prayers. She will, shall abstain from every unclean thing and shall not depart from the temple until she shall reach the years of discretion. She shall never know man but alone and without precedent, as an immaculate and undefiled virgin without intercourse with man, she shall bring forth a son. She, his handmaiden, shall bring forth the Lord both in grace and in name and in work, the Saviour of the world. Gabriel then said, Arise therefore and go up to Jerusalem, and when you arrive at the gate, that, because it is plated with gold, is called golden, there for a sign you shall meet your husband, for whose safety you have been anxious. When therefore you find these things accomplished, believe that all the rest which I have told you shall also undoubtedly be accomplished. On the following day, Joachim brought his offerings to the temple, worshipped the Lord, and then returned home. There was great joy and celebration, and when it was heard that Anna conceived. The many icons depicting the conception by Saint Anna show the most holy Theodokos trampling a serpent underfoot. In the icons, Saints Joachim and Anna are usually depicted with hands folded in prayer, their eyes are also directed upward and they contemplate the Mother of God who stands in the air with outstretched hands. Under her feet is an orb encircled by a serpent, 
symbolizing the devil, which strives to conquer all the universe by its power. There are also icons in which Saint Anna holds the Most Holy Virgin on her left arm as an infant. On Saint Anna's face is a look of reverence. If you've just joined us, welcome to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox Radio Programme on Wellington's Access Radio, 106.1 FM. I'm Kadlote Konomu and I'd like to remind you that you can listen to this and previous programmes anytime that suits you through the Access Radio website at www.accessradio.org.nz. Simply click onto the Religion and Spirituality link, then scroll down to the Greek Orthodox Holy Metropolis of New Zealand section. It's now time for Question for the Priest, and Father Meletheos, priest, monk and abbot of the Holy Archangel's Monastery in Levin, will answer the question, why do we call our church Greek Orthodox, or... Are the Greek, Russian, Serbian, Romanian all one church? In the symbol of faith, our church is described as the one holy, catholic and apostolic church. One because there can only be one true church with one head who is Christ. The source of the phrase Greek Orthodoxy has in our days assumed an ethnic sense, which however distorts reality. The phrase Greek Orthodoxy or Rome Orthodox is more accurately rendered in English as Roman Orthodox, just as the phrase Roman Catholic cannot be translated as Italian Catholic, so too the term Rum or Roman when referring to Orthodox Christians should not be translated as Greek Orthodox in a way that carries an ethnic content to a purely ecclesiastical terminology. Our Orthodox Church is called the Greek Orthodox Church because Greek was the first language of the ancient Christian Church from which our faith was transmitted. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the early writings of Christ's followers were in Greek language. The word Greek is not used to describe just the Orthodox Christian peoples of Greece and other Greek-speaking people. Rather, it is used to describe the Christians who originated from the Eastern Roman Christian Church, which used Greek thought to find appropriate expressions of the Orthodox faith. Our church is also spoken of as the Greek church to distinguish it from the Latin church of the West. 
Christianity originated in Palestine, spread rapidly throughout the Mediterranean basin, and by the end of the 4th century was recognized as the official religion of the late Roman or Byzantine Empire. It was extremely vital and dynamic in its historical development. Its five major administrative centers or churches were located in Rome, Constantinople, New Rome, Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem. The articulation of Christian doctrine and order was achieved through the great ecumenical councils, the first of which was in 325 AD. At these councils all leaders and centers of Christianity were represented and shared in the discussions. Now, after 2000 years, we have more administrative centers, but even though each church is governed by its own bishop, all are united in faith, teaching, and in communion of the body and blood of Christ. Thus, the Orthodox Church is one as the body of Christ is one, but the local communities of Orthodox Christians are many. The Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Serbian Orthodox Church, the Romanian Orthodox Church, etc., are members of the same worldwide communion, or to use the language of the question, they are the same Church. This is expressed in many visible ways, for instance, that the people and the clergy share the sacraments, holy mysteries, and that the patriarchs commemorate each other by name whenever they celebrate the divine liturgy. Theologically speaking, each localized church is governed by its own local bishop. This localized church, the Catholic Church, complete whole church, in the terminology of the first centuries, is typically called a diocese. This model of governance dates back to the time when the apostles planted churches throughout the Roman Empire and appointed local bishops to govern those churches. Basis and principle of organization of the Church of the Roman Empire was always geographical, with one bishop elected for every city, to whom all inhabitants of the region were submitted without any discrimination, linguistic or other, in accordance with the apostolic instruction there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male nor female, for all you are one in Christ Jesus. The Ottoman Empire adopted and respected the existing ecclesiastical terminology, according to which the conquered Roman Christian was not distinguished on the basis of linguistic or ethnic origin, but on the basis of one's identity as a member of the Church. In this respect, in the Eastern languages, Greek, Turkish and Arabic, the patriarchates, the ecumenical patriarchate as well as those of Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem, were characterized as Rum or Roman Orthodox, in contradiction to Rum or Roman Catholic, or the Armenian and Syrian churches. Problems arose when with the rise of nationalism in the Balkans in the 19th century, the term Rum was translated as Greek, as a part of reorganization and independency of the various Orthodox peoples from an ecclesiastical church viewpoint. Meanwhile, of course, the Greek nation had been established, and every concept of Hellenism was understood in nationalistic terms, thereby making an entirely different content to original term, Rum. The original sense of the term is even preserved in the Unite churches which unfortunately bear the inappropriate title Greek Catholic, for their members are certainly not Greeks, but units subjected to the Pope, though using the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Rite. 
Another fact is that all the Slavic peoples had no problem whatsoever in being called Rum Orthodox and being under the jurisdiction of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, which we should not forget was never attempt to Hellenize the Slavs even during the period of their Christianization. On the contrary, their language was improved, essentially engendered with the creation of a specific alphabet and the consolidation of a cultural identity. The Church of Russia from the 18th century until the October Revolution had no difficulty being called Greek Russian, while Church in the United States was until 1971 called Russian Orthodox Greek Catholic Church of America. The Orthodox Church of Antioch refers to her people in Arabic as Rum Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. The expression Rum Orthodox does not mean that we are of Greek descent. An Orthodox Christian of whatever national origin may go to any Orthodox Church and receive the sacraments, baptism, chrismation, holy communion, confession, unction, matrimony and holy orders. The Orthodox Church today is a communion of a self-governing churches, each administratively independent of the other, but united by the common faith and spirituality. Their underlying unity is based on identity of doctrines, sacramental life and worship, which distinguishes Orthodox Christianity. All recognize the spiritual preeminence of the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, who is acknowledged as the primus inter pares, first among equals. We Orthodox are all one Church, whether we call it Rome Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, or just like in the Creed, one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The Church is one, one body of Christ. For there cannot be two bodies under one head, and Christ is called the head of the Church. Therefore, one Christ, one head, one body, one Church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Today's Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. At that time Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made straight, and she praised God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's listen now to Father Pavlos explaining today's Gospel to us. In a very important thing, the Church of 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 
ενδιαφέρεται, δηλαδή παίζει ρόλο με πώς σκεφτόμαστε για τα Χριστούγεννα. This particular passage has relevance to Christmas. You might say, well, it doesn't mention Christ's birth at all. What in the world could it have to do with Christmas? But if you listen carefully, you'll see that it does indeed speak to us about Christmas. And you'll say, well, how is that? Μιλάει για τα Χριστούγεννα που πολύ υποφέρει, 18 χρόνια, δεν μπόρεσε να κοιτάξει από τη, από, να, να, σηκώθει το, να σηκώσει το, χέρι, το κεφάλι της να βλέπει επάνω. Μόνο έβλεπε την γη, τα, το, τη σκόνη της γης. Και αυτό ήταν πολύ λυπηρό. Ο Χριστός την πονούσε, ήθελε να την βοηθήσει. Και δεν περίμενε να, την, να, να τον ρωτάει, να ζητάει βοήθεια. Αυτός μόνος του λέει, έλα εδώ να σε θεραπεύσω. Και έτσι έγινε καλά αυτή. Έβαλα τα χέρια του πάνω και θεραπεύτηκε. Και αυτό είναι πολύ σημαντικό, να το πούμε και στα αγγλικά. This woman, this story is important because Christ sees a, a woman, a, a human being who is suffering for 18 years. And what is she suffering from? She is bent over. Her back is is uh, obviously uh, arthritic or somehow deformed, perhaps from an illness, perhaps from a fall, and she cannot raise her head up. She is, for the past 18 years, she's looking only at the ground. And I knew a woman in one of my parishes that I served when I was in the United States, and she also had this kind of a curvature of the spine and that kept her from being able to look up. But by God's grace, she always had a positive and happy Uh, disposition. But this woman's situation was so dark because she didn't have Christ. She didn't have the blessings of the church. She didn't have the, the Holy Spirit to, to give her hope. But instead, all she could see all the time was the ground. And that has to be a very depressing kind of an experience for any human being. And Christ has sympathy for her. He sees her and he calls out to her. He doesn't wait, if you'll notice, that he doesn't wait for her to, to ask to be healed. Instead, he calls out to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. And immediately he placed his hands upon her. She was immediately made straight. She was immediately able to look up. That's an amazing thing that Christ did for that woman. Now, you say, what does that have to do with Christmas, Father Paul? It's a wonderful story that Christ cared about a woman. But make the analogy yourself, and you will see immediately that it's a 100% analogy. O Christos, o Kyrios mas, pos ήρθε στη γη. Γιατί από τον ορό είδε όλοι μας να κοιτάζουμε όχι πάνω στον Θεό, αλλά κάτω στη γη, στα γήινα πράγματα. Ο ένας να σκοτώνει τον άλλον, ο ένας να ζηλεύει τον άλλον, ο ένας να μισθεί τον άλλον, ο ένας να, να δολοφονήσει τον άλλον. Πολλά άσχημα πράγματα. Και ούτε, ούτε ένας να κοιτάζει προς το πάνω. Βεβαίως ήταν εδώ στο Θεό του το Μωυσή, τους προφήτες, ήταν μερικοί άνθρωποι που είχαν καλή διάθεση. Αλλά πολλοί άνθρωποι κάτω με το κεφάλι τους στη γη. Μόνο να κοιτάζουν τη σκόνη, τη, 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 τη λάσπη και να μην σκέπτονται γιατί άνωθεν για, 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 για ό,τι είναι α, από τον ουρανό και σκέφτονται μόνο για το σήμερα και όχι για το, 
για την ερχόμενη ζωή, για την αιωνιότητα. Αυτό είναι άσχημο πράγμα. Και ο, ο Χριστός λυπήθηκε το κόσμο. Δεν περίμενε να, εμείς να φωνάζουμε, έλα Θεέ μας να μας βοηθήσεις. Γιατί αν μα περίμενε ο Θεός μέχρι να, να ξυπνήσουμε, θα, θα περίμενε ακόμα. Γιατί ο κόσμος χωρίς τον Χριστό βλέπει μόνο τη λάσπη, βλέπει μόνο τη γη. Δεν κοιτάζει προς το πάνω. When we look at the story with just a little bit of understanding, we see that it is 100% relevant for the Feast of Christmas. Because when God was in heaven, when the Lord Jesus Christ, well, before he was, took flesh, was in heaven, with his Father and the Spirit, they looked down on earth and they saw us, the one God, of course, three persons, looked down upon us and saw our state, and saw that human beings are a sorry, are a sorry um, creation, because we can't look up. We were designed to look up. We're the only animal designed to stand on two feet so we can look up all the time, look up to God. But where do we look instead? We, we, the animals themselves, who have four legs, they do a better job looking up than we do. We are looking down, looking at the earthly things, looking at the things of mud, the things of clay, the things of dust. Our minds are, are, are entranced with things that, that rust and corrode and, and degrade and fall apart and corrupt and we don't take our, our eyes up to the things of heaven. We look at things that satisfy the passions, the flesh, which passes away, for we don't look at the things which are eternal. And this is a sad thing, and God didn't wait for the human beings to, who are in this sorry state to, say, to call out to God, Lord, save us from this sorry state. No, He came to us. He came to us when we were in this very sad and difficult situation, and He took our flesh. And he came and he took that flesh so that he could raise up the human being again. So the human being's face could be turned toward God again. And he made himself that first and, and one complete and whole and holy human being, lacking nothing, perfect in every way. And he looked up to heaven and he saw God in heaven and he called out to him and he called him Abba, Father. And he taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven and many other things. And so he turned our, our eyesight from the down to the dust to up to the heavens. And what a blessing that is. And why is at a Christmas reading? I'm sure now you understand. It's the most beautiful thing that you could be reminded. That God came and had sympathy for us. He didn't wait for us to ask for him to, to come. And when we see how the, the human response at that moment, it was a negative response, unfortunately from the high priest, or the rather the religious authority who was seeing Christ doing this uh, miracle. What does he do? He immediately becomes indignant, immediately becomes angry, because this archisinagogos, the, the leader of the synagogue, is upset that this woman was healed on a Saturday. But you notice that Luke is very careful to point out that this woman didn't ask to be healed on the Saturday. But really the man then is not criticizing the woman, Although he says, don't come to, on the Saturday to be healed, he's really addressing Christ. But he doesn't have the guts, doesn't have the decency to say it to Christ directly, he says it indirectly. He says instead to the woman, as if the poor little woman needed to be disciplined. After 18 years, and Christ understands 100% why this man is speaking to the woman, and he understands that he's really upset with him because he has, uh, in his own mind, broken the Sabbath. And Christ says, you are a hypocrite. He calls him very clearly, Hypocrita. Ekasto Simon, to Sabato, uli ton vun aftu. Doesn't any, each one of you, on a Sabbath day, 
set his own uh, cow free, iton onon abotis fatnis, ke apagagon potizi, doesn't he release his own um, uh, donkey from the manger so that he can lead him to water so he can drink? And this woman was bound. Uh, this daughter of Abraham was bound by Satan for 18 years. And shouldn't she be allowed to be freed on the Sabbath day? What a beautiful statement Christ makes. Christ is trying to tell us he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who gave us the Sabbath law. He knows when to apply it and when not to apply it. And he doesn't have any confusion here. To set people free from bondage is always a worthy thing to do on the Sabbath. And so Christ also came to free us from a broken religious system which was not leading people to salvation because it couldn't, because it relied on human beings being, being spotless and pure and free of sin. And every one of them has failed and every one will fail. So instead we needed God to come and take human flesh to be that one perfect, holy, spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world. And so he, he didn't show the law to be uh, pointless. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it, its every requirement so that all of us who were not able to fulfill the law, given to us by God, of course, could now take refuge in Christ. Still unable to fulfill the law, even today, but f fulfilled by the Holy Spirit and changed by God's forgiveness. And that's a very important message for Christmas. O Theos θέλει να σώσει όλο το κόσμο. Και εμείς που θέλαμε να κάνουμε το καλό, δεν μπορέσουμε να κάνουμε το καλό. Αλλά όταν έρχεται ο Θεός και όταν έρχεται το Πνεύμα το Άγιο μέσα στον άνθρωπο, γιατί μπορεί ο, ο, το Πνεύμα να, να κατεβεί στον άνθρωπο, γιατί ο Θεός έγινε άνθρωπος και έγινε τέλειος άνθρωπος. Και αυτός ο άνθρωπος ήταν υπάκοος, δηλαδή ο Χριστός ως άνθρωπος, ήταν υπάκοος στο Θεό μέχρι τέλος, μέχρι, μέχρι θάνατο, για να προσφέρει στο Θεό ένα τέλειο άνθρωπο που να μην έχει ούτε μία αμαρτία. Και έτσι ο Χριστός έγινε, ήταν τέλειος άνθρωπος. Και εμείς όταν ακολουθούμε τον Χριστό έχουμε τη χάρη Του, έχουμε την ευλογία Του και μπορούμε να κάνουμε και περισσότερα ωραία πράγματα που μπορέσουμε πριν. Our, our Lord, by taking human flesh, set us free so that we can live now a holy life. Where before we couldn't, now we can. Because God gives to us His very own Spirit. When we're baptized in Him, we receive His uh, redeemed and sanctified humanity as our clothing. And we can live a holy life. And we are so blessed by that. Now, as we've done over most of the last few weeks, we will read a little about St. Nectarios, given that this is the 100th anniversary of his repose, and our Metropolitan has asked that we try and speak a little about St. Nectarios's life as often as we can. So, let's pick up where we left off from the book St. Nectarios of Aegina, The Saint of Our Century, by Sotos Hondropoulos. Metropolitan Nectarios returned to his room, which was one of many just like it, situated next to the patriarchal church. It was a room filled with Byzantine icons, religious books and manuscripts. 
As Nectarios was about ready to pick up the Bible to read, the knocker on his door sounded. He put the Bible down and said, Enter. As the creaky door opened, a man with fiery eyes came in, bowing reverently. Welcome, Galinos, Nectarios said as he stood to welcome the man in. Embracing the man, he asked, So, tell me, how are things on the beloved island of Chios? How did you find the people in the town of Lethe? Are they all well? The Metropolitan pulled up a chair for the man beside his desk, and they both sat down. Galinos then proceeded to answer him, They are all well, your eminence. However, you must remember from the days you taught there how difficult their lot in life is. Some have a wonderful time here on earth, never in want of anything, and the others, who are unfortunately the majority, work as hard as slaves without ever even having enough food to fill them. Their poverty is great, your eminence. They are consumed by the wind, the sea, foreign lands, debts. Ah, by the way, I have divided the money you gave me amongst the families you specified, and you should be pleased to know that thousands of thanksgiving prayers have been said for you. Shaking his head, Galinos went on to say, This world is crooked, unjustly made, your eminence. I must admit to you, having been your caretaker for a while now, that I feel angry at God. I cannot understand why he has permitted a few lucky ones. Oh, Galinos, opposites exist everywhere. You work here with me and you see my life daily. You have seen how I have climbed the ecclesiastical ladder to higher positions, even though I have not sought to. This makes me realize that things happen in life which we don't understand. Yet we must have faith and total belief in God's actions and try not to judge him from our limited mortal understanding. Do you remember when Mr. Armanopoulos, for instance, began painting the evangelists in the church? Do you remember how you insisted that from what you could see, the icons would turn out to be nothing but smeared paint, yet now you stand in front of them for hours and marvel at their beauty? So you see, if you had any faith whatsoever in the artist, you would have waited until you saw the final painting and not have been influenced by the partly finished work. Such is the way it is with our Lord also. We must wait faithfully, patiently and hopefully to see his final product. Of course, you are right, your eminence, but I now have become old and I look back on my life and I wonder what I have accomplished. My wife, who was my companion, is dead. Two of my children are in Russia, and I always think that if I hadn't met you in Hios and had you not been kind enough to take me under your auspices, making me a caretaker, I don't know what would have become of me. I would have surely died a beggar. Take notice, Galinos, of what I am about to tell you. This world is indeed unfulfilling and imperfect, but that is what makes me believe all the more that our life on earth is a temporary existence. 
it can be compared to a train station because at all train stations we eagerly await the train to come to take us to better places. So too, death will be that train which will take us to a better place. I am telling you this, Galinos, because I know that unfortunately you do not read the holy book. If you will try to read it, Well, anyway, let me not keep you any longer, your eminence. I must have tired you with my grievances, and that's taking advantage of your kindness, that you, being a bishop of prominence, would spend so much time with just a lowly caretaker is very kind and most unusual. Thank you. I hope that we can get together again sometime. By the way, I forgot to tell you that the Archimandrites are secretly arranging something concerning you which I could not figure out. They do not seem to like you, Your Eminence. It does not matter, Galinos. I love them, and that is enough for me to keep my inner peace. When exactly did you return from the motherland? Did you have calm seas? I returned the day before yesterday, and yes, the sea was as calm as oil. And you came here this morning, asked Nectarios. Yes, answered Galinos, and I have a package which was given to me for you. I think that it is mastic. I will bring it to you this evening after the Vespers. Please bless me. May you go in peace. Nectarios was now finally alone, alone to ponder upon his recent life. He looked around his room, which was richly decorated with icons and filled with books and old religious manuscripts. He sighed as he thought about how much he loved orthodox theology, which he considered the science of sciences, and yet how it was still so unknown and hidden for most people. Accidentally glancing at a clock, he realised that the time which he was usually called for dinner in the dining room was approaching. But because he had no appetite, he decided that he would excuse himself as being sick and take the opportunity to fast for the Lord. Quickly drawing back into his thoughts, he wondered why he enjoyed being alone so much. Chapter 3 Like a fresh white flower in the dew, so was the creative renaissance that was now observed throughout the country. On a hot spring night in the evening hours, when the day's bustle would once again begin, one could observe many new things which had been making themselves apparent for a time now. For instance, there was the new style of dress the Europeans had been wearing when visiting, which consisted of cool white clothing and hats. Also notable were the uniforms of the club carrying British soldiers, which basically consisted of a shirt and short pants. There were also a great many new shops open, stores specialising in linens and shoes and restaurants and bars. However, this progress did not exist in the Arab section of town because of the misfortune of poverty and all the misery that came with it. In his room, once again, Nectarios sat at his desk looking at the large crucifix which hung on the wall and contemplated his future. A rumour that the people wished him to succeed Patriarch Sophronios had been circulated. He had heard that not only people consisting of all the classes of Greeks, but Roman Catholics and Protestants as well had been praising his various virtues. 
What others considered his virtues, he simply considered his duties, or the most elemental obligations of a monk, and no less for a patriarchal trustee as himself. The future he contemplated, however, as opposed to the people's wish, was one in which he could achieve the things he considered truly important, such as extending his ministry to the unfortunate Arabs as well as to more of his own flock. These were the things he hoped to do, dreams he hoped to come true when he was first ordained a priest. He now decided that what had kept him as what keeps most people from setting about to fulfil their dreams was a lack of time. He decided that he would remedy that by cutting out a few hours of his sleep. He would then visit those Orthodox Christians whom he knew were tired, sick, or who had lost hope and faith, and those who were weak believers. He thought to himself that the treasure of orthodoxy must be spread and must shine and be victorious. He must make each and every soul understand in the inner depths of their hearts just what they owe to Jesus Christ the crucified, resurrected, and glorified Son of the living God. That's all that we've got time to read today, but God willing, we'll pick up again and continue reading this book next week. As we're nearing the end of our time together today, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox Radio broadcast on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM and hope you'll join us again next Sunday. We'd like to thank all our fathers for the inspiration and help we get from them and a special thanks today to Fathers Pavlos and Melateos. We look forward to seeing you soon, and may our beloved Christos and Panagia bless and protect us all. Now, just to her final notice, um, for those in Wellington who are interested, there will be church at St. Nectarios in Petoni next Sunday, so on Sunday the 12th of December. And Father Joachim, who will be travelling from Hastings, from the Church of St. Dimitri, will be serving the liturgy there. And of course, everyone is welcome. So we hope to see many of you there for that service. Chiarete. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.